welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations overcome the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, Avery Quinn, who is a senior software engineer at Remotion. Avery joins us today from the ever chilly Winnipeg in Canada. Avery Quinn, we're so glad to have you join us on Maintainable. Welcome. Hi, Ravi. Thanks so much for having me. So as you reflect on your experience in the industry, Avery, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, well-maintained software? I would say that I find well-maintained software to have cohesive modules, be singularly responsible in its functions, and have just a general level of refinement over time. Very concise answer there, Avery. I'm curious, can you describe what cohesive modules mean for those out there listening, and in particular me, that that doesn't necessarily have like a direct definition of what that might look like? Yeah, for sure. I won't get into the whole like description of what cohesive is, but to me, a cohesive module is one that really has a singular, well-defined job, something that when you either yourself come back to later or someone who's unfamiliar with a section of code comes to, it's easy for them to understand what's going on, be it through comments or functions that have a, you know, a small length that are digestible. They have very clear invariants about what's going to happen in them and maybe how they might fail. You know, as you're thinking through getting involved in existing software projects and you're trying to make sense of things, how do you kind of navigate that process? Do you have like a patterns that you've kind of developed over the years or things that you're like, well, how do you know what to absorb and what things you can kind of ignore for now as you're trying to understand the bigger picture while likely probably needing to drill in on something very specific? I've had a lot of practice on this recently. I've been learning Swift, uh, switching over from TypeScript. And so it's come up a lot that I'm spending time in a new code base. And I think it's really helpful getting a clear picture of what the goals are, maybe what, you know, if it's something that you're fixing, what's the problem with performance? It's, you know, just a great benefit to have other people on a team that can take you through and, and talk through bits of code as you kind of build up this understanding. And then I find oftentimes the direction that things head in terms of implementation is, uh, you know, especially if you're replacing something, which is something we've done a lot at Remotion as we switch out bits, bits of technology is finding the common elements between those. And I think when you initially start a project, you, you might not have a super strong idea of how something might be used or how it might change in the future. And I think once you have that time of experience and you know, run into these limitations, you can kind of find a common thread that you pull out. And so, you know, for example, I was doing work recently on improving latency of some of our, our messaging for control events and drawing events that are going across the network between users in a conversation. And it was basically taking what was dealing with the specifics of one provider and realizing that really it's only just about publishing messages, sending messages, and a bit of initialization. Uh, and then just, I think, given the, the realities, you can't completely rewrite something all the time. A nice way to approach that is to you know, have a fork in the road, if you will, where you can switch between those different implementations and try things out. Do you find that, you know, in that type of example that you just you were just mentioning, where you might go in and you're trying to you might need to replace like a piece of technology or a dependency in your your application, 
and and if you're a newcomer to an existing project and you don't necessarily know just how entrenched you know that dependency might be and how just dependent you are i suppose on it uh, it's interesting that we call them dependencies and versus just like marginally i don't know if there's a better word for like something that would be like your app is dependent on it but if you were to pull away like how how dependent was it on it and that that can be tricky to kind of assess early on so how do you kind of think about making sense of that I think it's definitely a really strong consideration when you're taking a look at something like if it's well maintained, it's hopefully cohesive and something that's very easy to get a handle on. Um, from there, I think there's just a lot of power in searching through a project and finding references. If, if you're in an editor that lets you find places things are called, um, oftentimes a really helpful tool for me is just writing out those hierarchies on paper to understand how objects are interacting. I think that's kind of like this nice, important point where you can realize that you could actually do something in a completely different way that maybe cuts out a lot of that complexity and those cross-cutting concerns where, you know, say you have a module and a bunch of sub-modules where each of them is tied in. You can reduce that point of interaction to a smaller surface area. And then I think, I think a, lot, a lot more clear answers about how your system should work sort of arise naturally. How do you weigh up what seems like a good bet for now? and long-term on bringing a dependency in? Uh, for me, I just really like to use a really simple project skeleton to orient myself around what the problem is, the context that's leading into it, uh, maybe some historical choices that you had to make that have led things to be in a way that you don't like anymore. And then the most recent example doing work on the latency of our messaging, it was coming up with a plan for, you know, we have this amount of time that we want to spend on this project. So we'll spend a few days uh, trialing, like gathering information about a couple different alternatives. You know, for one, most important to us was latency, but understanding other questions like how quick would it be for us to implement? You know, if we want to have a really quick turnaround on a project, if something's going to be very fiddly and DIY, um, that has some different detriments, even if it has happened to be faster. For our most recent project, we came up with a list of eight or so different providers that could do messaging for us, and they, they all had very different use cases. We made a small tool. I think this is maybe something that's helpful is, you know, you don't always have to do something inside of an application, especially if you're working in a bigger application that is harder to make changes to, even locally, maybe it has a very long runtime. So it's helpful to have that separate tool where you can really quickly iterate on different implementations. And for our case, that meant measuring what the latency actually was for messaging on those platforms, coming up with some impressions of how easy it felt like one or the other would be to implement. If, if I'm understanding correctly, you have like a skeleton project, like a simpler app. Yeah. And then you try integrating with within that environment try, before you try to do the actual implementation into your system that already has a bunch of things to consider and connections you're going to have to make, you know, once you start making down that path, it might make it more difficult to assess other options outside of like, well, we got to a certain point, see how long it took, and then let's create another branch and try again with a different one. And then I would imagine that if you do that in your primary application, teams are more likely to maybe continue down that same path because there's a little bit of sunken cost. Like, well, we've already made some progress here. Yeah, sunken cost. And, and two, like a, a big project like that will 
maybe have an order of magnitude longer time in, in seeing how something works, you know, getting it started uh, and initializing and getting to those errors rather than, you know, just having a command line tool you can run that is in a really close environment, but it's letting you move really quickly, make mistakes in, in different libraries. And I find that to be a big benefit. Yeah, that's, that's a good suggestion for, for those listening. You know, I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit about what you mean by, I'm air quoting, just enough software architecture. Oh, that's a, I love that. Um, so Just Enough Software Architecture is a book I was introduced to uh, in my very seminal years of software engineering when I was um, learning from a lot of different mentors. And it really resonated with me. Um, you know, to me, the central idea of the book is that there's some value in, you know, taking the time, like I'm I've been discussing today, to go over how things work, how they interact with, and sort of maybe even just faith-based believe that there's benefits to taking that time to think about things beforehand that you experience later when you've made those good decisions. You haven't pushed things too far, but you did take a little bit of time to consider your actions. Thanks. And that, the author of that is? That is Fairbanks. Yes. And an absolutely beautiful cover. Nice bridge there being built. Cartoon, cartoonized bridge. It's really, really beautiful book. Nice. I'm going to include links to the, in the show notes for everybody for that. I think probably also helpful to note is, you know, a lot of the tools that I've built up over the years for how I, I think about and, you know, draw out systems on paper is, I, I think, goes back to things I learned in that book. And, you know, even some of the, just the funny stick figure diagrams, they, they seem silly or maybe overkill at times, but uh, it's just like any tool. Once you know how to use it, it just kind of flows naturally when you're, you're at the paper considering ideas. You know, I'm curious, at what point do you believe in a software code base's life cycle that is, does it become legacy? Like when is, where's that line in your, in your current iteration of Avery on the planet? What, where does that line exist for you right now? To me, I th I've been thinking a lot about when a system becomes a legacy versus maybe just when it has, you know, ill-fitted decisions. And it really boils down to when the decisions that you made in the past are at a strong dissonance with what you need to be doing with the software now when there's this mismatch. I, I, I think software development is as much uh, an art as it is a science. And I think there's a lot to getting that gut feeling working in a piece of software where you're realizing that you're really struggling to fit the kinds of ideas that you want to take forward into the project and the slate of, you know, of toys and modules that you have uh, from before. And so is that like ill-fitting? Would you describe that, that, that example where things are ill-fitting the business now? Maybe it's really complicated to add new things. Is that seen as a little bit separate than what people might consider be, to be a legacy and that it's still providing value and seems to be doing what it needs to do, but maybe it's just an older application? Hmm, I'm not sure I totally understand. I, I mean, I do think they're very intrinsically linked. I think there's... There's no, nothing to preclude a system that maybe isn't a good fit for new ideas to be working completely fine. I feel like there's a tipping point where it becomes harder and harder to make small incremental changes there. You start to feel a, a real, really strong discomfort. Your estimates start getting really big. That's a real thing. And um, so outside of like maybe downsides, like things taking a lot longer, what other types of challenges have you seen teams and organizations face when they've got these older code bases that are 
seemingly taking longer to add new things to or make it changes to? Well, I think it really becomes a problem when it starts to constrain what you can do in the system compared to what your, your tangible goals are. I think when you start to have to make compromises as you're developing that maybe are to the detriment of your, your customers or your users because you, you've made some bad decisions or a tool can't do what you want it to do, I think it can be a real, real impediment to a good user experience. Well, how would you classify if something was, say, there were some dependencies that seem to be doing exactly what you need them to do, but those technologies haven't evolved much. Maybe they're not getting a lot of community support if it's an open source library or something. In the past decade, and your the development team is kind of thinking, well, this is old. There's new things we could be using now that do that kind of fill in that void, but there hasn't been enough of a a need thus far, or the priorities, or the time, whatever insert whatever excuse a team might have for making the change from one thing to another thing, how do you kind of make those distinctions of when it makes sense to make those changes versus like we can probably keep getting by with the thing that's already working because we're not having to change much related to that. Or there are teams that also are worried. They know that that's now getting outdated and more and more outdated that the conversations with the product team or whoever in the organization is helping prioritize things that there's a perception that if we keep stacking more things on top of that old thing, it's going to be problematic. So we shouldn't, so there's a little bit of resistance because there's, we haven't prioritized the upgrade on something or the, the, or maybe not upgrade, but the migration from dependency A to dependency B. So we should stop stacking stuff on dependency A right now, even though it's doing what it, we needed to do. How do you navigate that sort of conversation with your teams? I think it's most helpful in those situations to try to quantify um, what the effect of not making that change is. And I think it's especially relevant when it's, some system like testing maybe or part of your build apparatus that doesn't have any direct effect on customers but is causing a lot of impediment and if tests for example are actually a really easy one because say you realize your tests are all taking too long and you can say well every developer is running tests for this many minutes of every hour and we have this many developers turn around and say, look, like we're going to save five to 10 hours across the team per week. This will give us more time to accomplish our goals. I think that's a good way to try to justify the value of something that's not so related to, to product or active product development. I think it's easier, maybe. Maybe it's just the essential nature of software development that when it comes to affect what you're actively trying to do in your main body of work, when you have to make those kinds of compromises, it really does force you to think about what your priorities are for the solution that you're coming up with if you're able to quantify the savings that you make in one way versus another alternative. I think that's a good way to have a healthy discussion about what the right choices are. And I think that just is software design at its essence. We'll be back with our interview with Avery in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I just want to take a quick moment to say thank you for making time to listen to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and a writing review on Apple Podcasts to help spread the word. And with that, let's get back to your interview with Avery Quinn. Let's talk a little bit about your work at Remotion. Could you introduce the audience to what your team is currently working on and how I know there's been some pivoting there. So maybe you can kind of help educate us listeners. Yeah. 
Yeah, so we've been a, a form of remote software work in a couple different incantations, but most recently, earlier this year, we we refocused ourselves towards being a better Zoom for software engineers, um, specifically trying to deliver the best-in-class experience for screen sharing and audio-video for developers and the software engineers that are working on projects. Nice, and is that primarily... A lot of this like screen sharing, coding, pairing type of scenarios, or is that kind of quite a bit of actual back and forth conversing and chats and stuff like that as well? I think it's a mix of both. And, you know, for me right now, we're really focusing on how to make a, a version of screen share that lets you feel like you're side to side with someone else, we're giving you little bits of remote control, like I've been talking about. Uh, remote control and latency today, and just really enriching that experience. Like, I'm, it's probably the most unique software job I've ever had where I am dogfooding the application that we build every day. We are you know, adding new features that make it more convenient to work together and, and getting to see how that plays out. That's cool. You know, I've, I've used a couple of different tools. I don't know if you're familiar with like Tuple. That's what our team primarily uses. Yes. How is it currently distinguishing itself in comparison to something like that for, for the listeners? Mm, that's a good question. I wish I had my uh, little angel on my shoulder of uh, our CEO, Alex. To, <laughs> it's okay. But uh, I would say, I think we're hoping to distinguish ourselves by having um, the most high quality and seamless experience for developers working together uh, on the market compared to to Zoom. Uh, interestingly, we're built on top of Zoom, but there are ways that you can improve and refine that experience and really you know, just as a concrete example, get the level of sharing down to Windows to have it feel, for example, if someone was sharing a Notion doc or a task in, in some sort of engineering tracking software that it just felt like you had opened that window on your own computer. No, that's that's nice. So I'll definitely have to, is that kind of early stages at this moment or is there like a beta that folks can play with? Yeah, folks are able to uh, get access if they like by heading to our website. I'm not sure the exact state of that at the moment, but it is remotion.com and uh, we've been updating there pretty frequently. Excellent. And just for the listeners, this is not a paid endorsement no. or paid episode by any means. This definitely was a kind of wanted to kind of learn more about this. I think I do. I agree that there needs to be more tools like this out there, more options for people. For those that are spending a lot of their time doing video screen or pairing with people over Zoom or through Slack's built-in tools, it's it's it definitely leaves a lot to be desired, I think. So looking forward to checking that out myself. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's it's been a joy to work on remote, you know, being a remote developer for most of my career. I think it's a joy to to just get time to actually, you know, I'm I'm a thinker and and to think about how remote work happens. One of the other topics that I was looking forward to speaking with you about is I know that prior to working in like a product company like this, you, you've also been a consultant. So couple, I have a couple of curious questions there because I've lived in the consulting world and I have for 20 plus years now. Is the grass greener on the product side? Oh, that's a tricky question. Is the grass greener on the other side? I think it, it depends on your mood. In your career, maybe maybe there's there's seasons of a career that you go through, and um, for me, I really I really enjoyed. I still think fondly of consulting, uh, being able to just jump on a project, and in this fun way, you're sort of the hero. 
But on the flip side, a lot of those are legacy systems. Like a lot of these pains of trying to fit something new quickly in an old project, um, they came from experiencing those projects. And on the other side, being on a product side, you know, I don't always think of every every project as a retrofit sort of legacy improvement project. And it is really nice to, to have that continuity uh, and ownership over what you're building compared to consulting. I don't know what that's like because I haven't worked in a product environment in 25, four years or something like that. But And that was a very limited amount of time that I even did that. So it, I'm always curious to hear how people think about their different career paths. Because I know we bring in interns into our consulting agency and I always try to like help them understand that you know, like there's different types of companies you can go work at. It's like just because we do software development and your company does software development, you know, doesn't mean we approach projects the same kind of way. There's different sorts of things you're going to get experience with. The thing that I can say about the consulting world is you probably get a lot of variety really quickly and you get exposed to a lot. Yes, absolutely. I think that is some of the best experience um, one can have in software development and engineering is being able to see a wide variety of projects that have different problems, different strengths and weaknesses. And yeah, like you said, I think it just gives you this whole toolbox of things to draw upon when you're doing something later on and you go, oh, I, I remember doing something like this. And you can take those ideas and yeah, just accelerate yourself. One of the things I think about as a consultant and being in this space is that I've just really appreciated that I get exposed to so much work done by other people before. And there's all these things that I never would have had experience of like ever seeing. And it's like, I can't copy and paste this and reason another project, but I can at least learn from every one of these experiences and be like, wow, that's, I never would have thought to implement something like that. And now we're coming in and cleaning that problem up or, you know, for anyone listening, that's kind of like maybe early on in their career, how would, how would you help people kind of navigate thinking through those different approaches, knowing that? I think to your point, um, I, I don't know that one way or the other being on one product or in software consulting, I don't know that you get any less of exposure to, to other people's ideas. I think that's for yourself to judge when you're maybe in a longer product position that you're not learning as much as you are anymore. And that can be a you know totally valid reason to seek different mentorship and challenges in your career. Yeah. And at the same time, there's a lot of value in consulting where you can see broader, varied ideas. It's, you know, really incredible thinking back on all the interesting people with different ways of thinking about problems. And as I've developed my own skill set, it's this amalgam of things I've liked and disliked from those approaches. So I think it's something, to, something that everyone should try to experience. Do you use the term, the metaphor technical debt very often? Yeah, we we use technical debt a lot. I think, you know, the flip side of technical debt is, you know, maybe compromise when you're coming to make those decisions. And also thinking about the definition of a legacy system, I think there's a limit when you have so much technical debt that that something becomes legacy, you know, as a as an effect of, of those compromises you had to make. Do you feel like your own understanding of what technical debt has evolved throughout your career? Yeah, I would I would say definitely there's been seasons of, of different styles of software development that put an onus on different things. Um, there was Agile that was increasingly popular, and there's been ebbs and flows in how important people think testing is and uh, what kinds of tests happen to be important or valuable. And I think it's definitely refined, for me at least, to things that are going to 
you know, create problems in the future, maybe sooner or later, um, you know, built upon that experience over time. Have you found there to be some effective ways for organizing and prioritizing those types of concerns or areas for opportunities in the your your project to you know to address those those types of items you might add to a technical debt list or however you manage that? Yeah, for myself at least, I like to collect information. You know, collect and categorize information about uh, a problem that's before me in terms of managing longer term tech debt. That's a, a question that, you know, I don't think I have an answer to yet. It's still, you know, keeping those kinds of things in project management software. They can build up over time. Sometimes they can be ignored. And I think that's, you know, another one of those kind of essential challenges of just managing information when you're working in a team of people, either distributed together. It's, it's a challenge to keep track of those things. And that's just something we have to keep at continually. Do you find that there's any useful data metrics that are valuable to track on like how you're doing as a developer or how your team is kind of tracking their progress and output? I think it's important to, for one, to revisit your estimates as you come up with them, just in terms of being repeatable and reliable as a team. And I think also just in terms of developer satisfaction, it doesn't feel good to miss your estimates. And conversely, it feels good to, to hit them or maybe do things sooner. So velocity is definitely one for me. But it can also depend on a lot of the team because different people have different ideas about velocity and estimates and points and, and what they mean to each other. But in terms of my own personal satisfaction, I think that's a good one for me. People have different opinions on these things and people are like, estimates are horrible. Like, you should never do them. We should stop doing it. And and there's other people like, oh, why is this such a complicated thing to do? And it's like, do you feel like there's anything in the, the water that different people are drinking that just kind of gets them in these very, very opinionated perspectives? Is it just that do you feel like it's because they were wrong on estimates or way off and then they got, you know, abused by a manager at some point for missing an estimate or something? What do you think contributes to that? Yeah, me, I wonder if it's just, yeah, a little bit of just being jaded at, at having had managers or, or coworkers that have used estimates poorly. And I think it's, it's not something that seems very well decided. So it is going to really depend on your team. Um, and hopefully most of your team feels the same way with some, some healthy dissent. But uh, <laughs> I think that's definitely something to judge for oneself if you know, it's an impediment to their own satisfaction in a, in a job or a career. Right, right. You know, you mentioned that you're working in the Swift environment. And is that primarily for like desktop applications or mobile devices? With a bit of everything? Yes. Uh, so the Swift work has been focused mainly on our desktop application on macOS. And I, I, that is an area that I have very, very little experience of knowledge about. Like, so what is the the approach that you're able to take when it comes to like, is, do you do a lot of automated testing in that type of environment or it's a lot of manual clicking around or QA department that you really heavily rely on? Well, we're in a, a unique position where we're working within the software that we build. So there is definitely a level of continual attention. I think for me personally, you know, I wish testing had a higher focus uh, than it seems to have in, in recent years, but we accomplish it through our unit tests where possible. And I think for bigger systems, 
thinking back to the project latency work that we were doing, there were internal measurements. You know, we have instrumentation inside of our application that help us, uh, you know, take a pulse on on different aspects of our of our system as it runs. Nice. Was that going down and getting in the desktop application and was that a specific decision you made at one point in time? Like, I really want to go focus on that type of environment or... It's it's definitely been a passion of mine. I had very early in my career, I had an opportunity to work on one desktop application in Objective-C and Coco when everyone was doing a photo sharing application or an online photo library. And I just really enjoyed it. I found it to be such a unique challenge to have that level of separation from a website where when you're deploying a website, you can you know, bring people along, you can keep everyone up to date. When you have a piece of software that's running on someone's computer, it's just, it's an ocean away. You, you really have to prepare carefully for that journey before you send your software out into the void to have people use. And uh, it makes you think very differently about how you build things. That's true. I don't, I mean, I've never worked on any desktop apps. I experimented many, many years ago back in doing some Linux stuff with like Qt and stuff. And I was like, oh, I'm going to build like some Linux desktop apps and never, I think I wanted to build like a weather app back in the day. And, but it's always been an interest of mine to like dabble in that, but I've primarily been focusing in the web 25 years or so now outside of like maybe like one of the projects, like open source projects, oh my Z shell where people can install some shell scripts and run that on their computers. And yeah, it's like they're super far away and I can't just quickly send out a bug fix to everybody. You have to rely on everybody to update themselves or automate the updates, but it's like, it's a whole thing. Like, so I've always been very conscientious about, I don't want to break people's computer. I don't want to ruin their, you know, their computer. If it, like someone snuck in some bad code. It's a little scary in in an exciting way, thrill seeking way. And I also just find it's just a totally different medium in terms of how things are laid out. Like you're dealing with UI elements that aren't just constrained to a website. There are different patterns in that space. A totally different level of asynchrony and system access than you have. So suddenly security concerns become uh, more pressing matters with where you're shipping data and API keys around. Uh, it's definitely, definitely a place to stretch your skills. there. We hope you're enjoying this week's episode of Maintainable. While you've been listening, has anyone crossed your mind who might be looking for help with their Ruby on Rails application? Planet Argon, the producer of Maintainable Podcast, would love to meet them. In fact, we've got a pretty sweet referral bonus program set up. If you send someone our way and they sign up for Planet Argon services, we'll give them a $1,000 discount. And your reward? We'll send you $1,000 just for connecting us to the right person. Sounds like a win-win for everyone. Head on over to planetargon.com forward slash referrals for more info. That's planetargon.com forward slash referrals. All right, let's get back to this week's episode. You know, let's say for like those listening and they might be part of a team that has accumulated a lot of technical debt or cruft or things that they're, they would like to revisit, but they've been hearing when they go to like advocate for, you know, you mentioned quantifying can be one strategy. Do you have any other advice on how they could raise these types of concerns and help advocate for themselves or should they just go look for a new job if they've heard not right now a little too often so they stop asking? 
Well, I think there's hopefully a venue that seems obvious to to raise that up, maybe through a manager or or someone else in their organization. Uh, I think there are also ways that you can work and, you know, it can be tough sometimes to advocate for these new kinds of processes and procedures, but just having something like an occasional fix-it day or week where, um, you know, you go and make a case to someone uh, on a human factor and say, you know, this is really going to help us, uh, you know, both improve morale and also be able to work more consistently in the future. And I think I would imagine if you're having the level of technical debt that it's making everyone feel that level of discomfort, that it's probably having an impact on velocity that's going to be tangible or obvious in some way. If, if you're measuring that already, I suppose, right? And But I think you're, you're definitely right there on, like, there are definitely strategies people can start taking to address these things themselves. Or I, I hear a lot of people talk about trying to find, like, a buddy, someone else that's going to, like, help advocate the same thing with you. And it's, it feels like politics, I suppose, in some ways, but it's not a bad thing necessarily. It's just, it is like there's a way to influence how things get decided amongst your team, I, I suppose. Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting, you know, it's not just working with computers and telling them what to do, building software, you know, the scale of what we're trying to do in most cases is bigger than one person can hold in their head at one time. You need to, to be able to communicate in ways with different people to coordinate that work and make it smoother. How often are you helping with people get onboarded into your organization as new software developers coming in? Or have you found there to be some strategies that your team takes on how to acclimate people to the application code base and things like that? Or maybe you share your own experience and what works and for you and maybe what could work for other people? Yeah, we haven't onboarded anyone recently, but we I did do some of that at Remotion last year and have definitely onboarded folks in the past. I think for me, it's really, you know, actually maybe just putting myself in, in the shoe of, you know, I've had the opportunity to learn Swift in a totally different framework of thinking. And um, one of the things that was most helpful for me is just being able to work with someone on a feature front to back and see how they think about these kinds of problems in this space. Because it's one thing to know JavaScript or Swift or whichever language happens to be the lingua franca around, but it's another thing entirely to understand uh, those decisions that have been made up over time, how those pieces play together, uh, technical debt, as we've been calling it. And I think one of the best ways to to conquer technical debt and also learn about a system is to to tease apart and understand those past decisions that you made in the project. Are there certain types of assets or documentation or that you find to be more valuable or maybe even less valuable to to help people come in and get acclimated? Like what's your take on documentation and where that should potentially go or should have, or should you invest that much time in it if things are changing quickly? That's a challenging question. I think documentation is really handy when it's up to date, but it also seems very vulnerable to quickly becoming out of date or accumulating to a volume that is hard to deal with. So I don't know that I've solved that problem for myself, but I think I look most to things like project documents or maybe historical decisions that have made, like something like an architectural decision record, if your company has those. But yeah, it's a broad question. Documentation is, uh, I feel like, highly dependent on the team. So a couple of last questions for you, Avery. I 
one, I like to ask people, is there a non-programming, non-tech related book? You know, you mentioned that book earlier, and that's definitely about like software architecture and just enough software architecture. Yes. But is there, is there, are there, is there another book that you find yourself recommending to peers to read that you feel like helps software engineers in their career? Oh, wow. I feel like I need to think about that. So I don't know that it's for everyone, but I, I am a, a woodworker, a hand-tool woodworker in my spare time occasionally, um, ebbs and flows twos. But I think learning a craft, maybe more generally, can teach you a lot about how you think about problems, uh, thinking about how a project is completed in terms of actual physical things is just really illuminating. And you can see parallels and differences with how you work in software and build when you have a different set of constraints. When you're doing woodworking, do you find yourself getting to a certain level of doneness that you're like, I, this is acceptable or this is there's nothing else that could be possibly done. This is now perfect. Like, where is, is it different than how you think about what's done enough for software code? I actually learned, I should find a link to this article for you. I learned a really important lesson about midway through my career. I was definitely very gung-ho about perfection. And I learned so much coming to woodworking. And I did uh, a really big live edge table for myself. And I realized through the process, like just sweating and um, really beside myself that I could never make it perfect. And I had to pick a level of imperfection that I was going to live with. And I read this article on perfection in woodwork and it really gave me, uh, you know, a cause to reflect on that, you know, it's okay to have things that we don't like with a piece of software or tool marks, you know, they are a part of that piece. And I think it really made me think of software a lot more as an art than just a, you know, a science and kind of a rote application of techniques. I think there's like, I personally find myself getting to a point where like, I've fixed a few things in my house and there's definitely like a, I should probably spend some more time on this, but I think I'm, I think this is going to cover for the next six to 12 months and we can, I'll revisit it at some point in the future, maybe. And I probably do a lot of that with my software code as well, if I'm being honest. And I'm also curious, I know that you're not big on social media or anything. Is there, how can people best follow your thoughts or get in contact with you to, to learn more about your thinking about software engineering? Uh, yeah, I have a GitHub profile that people can check out. I definitely have some, some legacy projects, if you will, that I still am proud of. Uh, I will share a link with you for that. And then I've been occasionally blogging. So I started blogging again. I have uh, an article that I, I really actually, you know, speaking of constraints and all of that, I challenged myself to write just a, like a classic five paragraph essay on refactoring legacy systems to kind of clear my mind about some of the stuff that we're talking about today. So I'm going to be blogging there. And yeah, I think other than that, I'm a, I'm a pretty quiet person. That's great. Uh, you know, since you, you mentioned refactoring, um, is it safe to assume that you're more on the side of team refactor than re team rewrite? I, I think so. Yeah, I definitely think there there's something to that. And I, I just enjoy the, the craft of thinking about software. So it's maybe a little just to my benefit. Well, it's been such a delight having you join us on Maintainable, Avery. Thank you so much for stopping by the talk shop. It's been awesome. Thanks so much, Robbie. I really enjoyed it. Looking forward to listening to this. 